listening to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host from Invent. Uh, hello and welcome to a, another episode of the Construction uh, Big Breakfast. I'm your host today, Ben, and I am delighted to welcome uh, Julia as our special guest today, uh, all the way from the mountains of America. Uh, Julia, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, hi, Ben, and, and uh, it's great to be chatting with you again. It seems like yesterday that we had our first chat about open data, but I'm I'm Julia Glidden and I'm the Corporate Vice President for Worldwide Public Sector at Microsoft and just really thrilled to be here chatting with you all today with my with my breakfast cup of tea in hand. Well, there you go. You've sort of uh, almost preempted the first and only scripted question of any podcast, which is what did you have for breakfast or what are you going to have for breakfast? I'm not sure what time it is there. <laughs> Uh, well, it is just about breakfast time, and um, truth is, I de defy the advice of the nutritionists, and I'm not a big breakfast person, but I have copious amounts of Scottish Highland tea that my British husband ships in um, directly and actually tests against water samples to get the perfect taste like we're back home, because London in our, you know, is my husband's home and in place I lived for 20 years, so my spiritual home. <laughs> Well, no, my uh, my normal tea would be Yorkshire. I never quite go as high as uh, Scotland. <laughs> Yorkshire would be my favourite brew. Um, but you know, maybe that's a subject of a different um, podcast. We can talk about the pros and cons of different teas. Uh, Yorkshire is our backup when we can't, when the supply chain, which was interrupted during COVID for uh, our preferred tea in Scotland, gets interrupted. Okay. One question about tea, um, and it's the most important question about tea. Is it milk first or milk after? Milk after, always milk after. There we go. I'm sure milk that'll cause controversy. Milk horrified my husband in the background. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, like you said, um, we um, have chatted sort of on and off over the years around the subject of sort of open data. And um, although it's September now, by the time this goes out in a couple of weeks, it will almost be five years to the day where um, you uh, blew the minds of many a construction person at the uh, Constructing Excellence um, uh, National Conference at Lord's, where you sort of first introduced some of this, these ideas, you know, that some of those people out there would never have heard of. Um, you know, you talked around data being the fuel for innovation, uh, how open data can create great things. And it got me reflecting a little bit on has anything changed? Um, and this part of me through the days I've thought of this that I've thought it has and then part of me that thought well probably not and I'm not sure whether I should be disappointed or if that's just a realization that is difficult you know you know Ben I think I think um, it is difficult I think it has changed. It's not all negative. You know, there is greater awareness about data, about the power of data, about the need for data across all industries, um, not just forward thinking industries or industries like yours that had the foresight to, to get ahead of the curve and really understand the concept and, and the potential of, of data uh, in the early days. So it is going mainstream increasingly going mainstream in the um, private sector driven by the public sector but that said the the 
breakthrough moment, the killer use cases, the aha, we all need to invest to grasp the potential, has, has really still not happened. Um, we have an increasing number of use cases that show real value, um, UK ordinance mapping and um, being able to work with master maps for autonomous vehicles as new technologies are coming online is, is a great example. New York Fire Department using open data to identify buildings at risk of fire is another great example, but we still haven't had that ubiquitous aha breakout moment. And uh, I mean, there are some great examples you've given there, but are there any that you've thought were almost that aha moment um, that you've come across? You know, sadly, I, I suppose, but also um, optimistically, this the best example still, in my opinion, in terms of mass exposure, mass usage and mass like everybody just saying, oh, I get that is the transport data and all the phenomenal transport apps that initially came out of you know transport for London and the tube. But now we're seeing it in cities around the world. And so if you think about how concepts that seemed you know, you use the word kind of mind blowing five years ago, have now gone mainstream. We take it for granted when we get off a plane that there's going to be an app that's going to help us navigate a city. So we're almost a victim of our own success in that the effort and the, the initiatives and the actual fuel or the raw material behind making that happen, which is open data and, you know, the citizen development of open data. Um, has become so mainstream on the one hand that we don't even recognize it. It's just blended into the fabric of everyday life. Now, the challenge with that seamless, we take it for granted, is um, it means we're not translating those um, innovations and the potential of further usage of data, further opening of data throughout industries like construction um, to, to the fullest potential. We're not really infusing it across the whole of an economy. No, um, in construction, I mean, people are very guarded. Uh, people sort of almost feel that if they let go of some of this, sort of this data, that it will almost be used against them rather than really seeing the transformative potential of it. And if you sort of pull those resources, come together, you create value and you can focus elsewhere. Um, I, I mean, that's just construction. I mean, you'll um, be seeing things across multiple industries, multiple countries. Is that a similar sort of barrier that you see? Yeah, it's very common across across most industries. There is a sense, and it's, it's human nature. If I own something and I control it and it's in my silo, it's adding value to me. And if I, and I'm good in where I'm at, but if I open it up, you know, doing something new is by definition the unknown. And if the value is not in my hands like it is or so seamlessly blended like we can see with transport apps, it's risky. And I've spent 20 years of my life, 25 years of my life working in the public sector. So if you think construction is risk averse, public <laughs> sector is even more risk averse, um, which is why it's ironic that public sector has really led the way in opening data. But I think if you take a look at um, areas and industries like transportation that have um, been less risk adverse on opening data or uh, some of private sector companies that have been more um, less risk adverse and really opened up product development to co-creation and collaboration 
um, with consumers, which is really about opening up data. You know, you know, I remember 10 years ago kind of blown away that Nike just would open up its website and would let citizens come in and share information. They would share information about new products and shoes and let citizens kind of come in and, and provide the feedback before before the product was released, right? That's an exchange of open data and co-creation through social media tools. Now it's almost unheard of. Why would you wait to build something through very closed and limited focus groups, not infusing all of the information available to you and all the feedback you can, and then develop the product and have it flop. So I think, you know, what we need in an area like construction, which again is, is you know, these are long-term investments. They're, they're high risk investments. They're long-term to fruition. So it's going to take a longer window to, benefit or capitalize on the investment but we need some high profile success stories we mm. we need we need some aha moments no we do and i think one of them um would be um sort of that realization that there are sort of different levels of opening up your data mm -hmm. um o open data doesn't mean you know showing everything um you, you know there are layers to this that we need to understand and sort of build a framework around that we can work together that seems you know there's almost this apprehension that it's nothing or everything um yeah. other than seeing that sort of the you know the odi have got that spectrum haven't they that is i think a, a really good way of showing it that doesn't seem to be sort of clicking um for, for whatever reason um i mean you made a a really good point that um you know the public sector is risk averse um even more so than construction is generally but they are leading the way so they must have they must see and must have seen the the, the potential value in what they do or is it almost the case of they have they just realize they can't do it themselves so it's better than doing nothing i think it's a combination i don't I, I think, you know, during COVID, we saw government really embrace technology and cloud because the risk of doing nothing was simply higher than than the risk of doing something and getting it wrong. We're not we're not there with open data. What happened in the public sector, um, and it's understandable, is there was a demand for transparency and to hold government accountable, you know, the sunshine laws. So some of the initial push for open data came around expenditures and procurement and contracts. Mm. But from that initial pressure, we started to see really good, strong use cases. You know, I, I've, I've talked to you a lot about transportation being the one that's the most ubiquitous. But if I link a public sector use case to construction in New York City, as I mentioned, using open data around buildings to, to identify buildings at risk of high, high risk of fire. Well, it's not hard for us to then think, oh, I, well, if the construction industry was accessing that data would understand some of the conditions that lead to high risks of, of fire, right? Some of it might be mixing up um, some geolocation, geospatial data with the with the high fire risks of data. And we might be able to say, well, you know what, if you build on the end of this forest plane, you're, you're going to be at high risk or actually the transportation for um, fire engines to get in and out is limited because open data shows us the the bridges are very weak and can't can't get the engine across i mean that usage even there from a construction perspective wouldn't even involve a company sharing their data it would involve just using data that is already out there mm -hmm. but you know to your earlier point the spectrum of data 
there's a there's a range of data and we do make a grave mistake if we think that data equals open data and i've had lots of discussions with colleagues of mine in the private sector to say no 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 yeah, there's closed data, there's big mm. data, there's open data. Open data is the low-hanging fruit that that when you open it in a machine-readable, accessible format that people can, can access easily, can really add magic to other sets of data. So I would encourage your membership to, to perhaps start dabbling with open data that they recognize and understand, like geospatial data, right? We all have GPS in our car. And how might they might be able to combine that with some of the data that that for proprietary reasons um, they think best to keep closed at this point? That's a good entry point. I mean, there are some uh, really good examples. Um, and again, here in the UK, a lot of it is either government led or to support government doing things. Um, uh, your government and uh, a, a firm called Bryden Wood have done some really excellent work uh, around uh, open source platforms and applications to develop schools, prisons and all sorts of other different things. They take into account geospatial location, location uh, planning requirements and then you just sort of tell it I could do with this and it does things in sort of five, 20 minutes that would normally take you know, months, if not years. Uh, and it's this, and they've open sourced it as well, which I think is even oh, more, which is wonderful. Um, it's fantastic. And it's really sort of turning the industry's business model on its head uh, and making people sort of focus on not the, the mundane repeatable, um, which is the low hanging fruit. It's focusing you on doing the hard stuff, um, which, which is really sort of where we need to sort of, you know, change our mind, uh, our mindset. Yeah, I think, you know, if we think about all of the um, pressures we have now for sustainable development, mm. think about the potential of combining geospatial data, environmental data, good building practice data, um, what has worked in other parts of the world data to, to help um, construction companies in the UK capitalize, leverage best practice and more quickly and more efficiently build environmentally friendly buildings. Or, you know, something that through my work in the UAE has always captured me, happy buildings. You know, happy buildings are based on a lot of data and statistics about the human brain, about psychology, about depending on the age, if we're children, certain types of spaces and locations with the sun make us happy in one way. If we're elderly, we have different types of needs. But again, if you think about just the, the, the business value impact in today's era of being able to leverage data that way, low hanging fruit, because you know the OECD, the World Bank, the UN all puts that data out there. Um, that value add is transformational and it's really innovative. It's really kind of cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, like you said, you know, happy people are more productive, happy children are better educated. Um, you know, it, 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 it shouldn't surprise anyone. It surprises some people. But yeah, if, if the environment is better um, and there are things that, I think, you know, construction um, reacts well to standards. Um, so things like the well standard that are coming yeah. out of the States. They really put an emphasis on creating happy spaces, you know, spaces that individuals uh, work uh, well. And there is this sort of um, uh, architecture for well-being um, sort of movement that's starting to um, uh, grow and grow as well, where, um, you know, what, how does an individual react to a certain type of material, whether that be sort of to, to the touch, to the feel, to the eye and, 
uh, air quality, all these things are starting to um, uh, uh, to impact what we build, um, which is great because there's always been, I feel, a disconnect uh, with a lot of uh, designs with the ultimate end user. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I rarely talk to those people. It's about what the client wants, not necessarily the end user wants at times, um, which is why we you don't always build what is really needed or required to to maximize their potential. Yeah, we, you know, we're finding that, you know, at Microsoft as I've really been digging in with the public sector teams, trying to make sure, look, we've got tools, but that's like the back of an ATM. What public sector wants is is the money, right? The the end product that's good for society, the mission outcome. And what we what we need to be doing is leveraging all of the data at our disposal, all of the information at our disposal, and all of the tools at our disposal to deliver that social value. So it's very similar, you know, very similar discussion and a very similar change in mindset. And you know, as you're talking and thinking, you know, you know, Weber once said, you know, bureaucracy was in advance. The iron cage of bureaucracy was in advance because as we moved from living in villages where we could very quickly and intuitively understand what people needed, what made them happy, where a building should or shouldn't be, the distance between, you know, two two buildings within a town. Um, as we needed to expand, we needed to build out a bureaucracy, right? That was that was an advancement on time. But that's very much now 20th century paradigm. We are kind of stuck in 20th century paradigms. You get the video of this, sorry. Colin, I'm bit, I'm taping something. <laughs> it's fine, honestly. I mean, well, give it five minutes. My daughter might walk in, so. Uh, <laughs> but, but my- we're very much stuck in 20th century thinking 20th century ways of doing things because we've always done that done these things this way and they've worked more or less the challenge is if we don't break out of that iron cage if we don't break out of that 20th century way of thinking about and and mapping the potential of what can be done we we are um limited and and we are limited with um if we look at the construction industry buildings that do not meet the full potential of addressing human potential Mm. buildings that are locked in an iron cage of 20th century limitations instead of the 21st century innovation and explosion that technology tools and data sets in great minds and human collaboration can really unlock and i do think that the company that grasps the nettle, invests in the data scientists and thinks big and out of that iron cage is going to create that breakthrough moment, you know, that everybody then turns around and says, why, why didn't we do that? Why is company X the gold standard now? It was so obvious. <laughs> yeah. And it's, in, I mean, you've got, um, you know, Google um, in Toronto, um, you know, they were really trying to push this sort of idea of a, a smart city and, yeah. Uh, and sort of data-driven decision-making in how they build and how the city operated once it was built. Uh, that's obviously hit, hit some hurdles. I think partly because they tried to push too too hard, too fast, um, and they ended up just annoying everyone. <laughs> I, I was I was going to say, if I had to think about that, it you know, you have to walk before you can run, and, and we need proofs of concept trying to take on a whole city and the complexity of that ecosystem with everybody locked in their own iron cage, I think it's just too much too soon. 
yeah, build a building first. Exactly. <laughs> maybe a community, yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. a neighborhood. Yeah, so I, I mean, I like I like the vision, I like the ideas, but it was just too much too quickly, especially, um, you, you know, one of the, never mind how we as industries use data, um, data privacy is obviously sort of a really big uh, issue of concern for the general public. And then when you're being told that everything you do is going to be monitored for your well-being, there's plenty of people that are going to push back on that sort of idea, whether they realise what that really means or not. Yeah, I think... You know, when you, and it's so such an opportunity for the construction industry because you're really not dealing with that sensitive personal data, aggregate data sets that um, with that are de-identified to talk about patterns of what makes people happy or where sunlight um, lands or you know the impact of shadows. And I mean, I know all of this. Of course, it, it's like I'm I'm talking to people about sucking eggs. I know this is what people in construction and engineering and architecture do. But it's still done on limited availabilities of data within certain contexts and countries. And I'm really talking about the potential of accessing, you know, larger scale, broader scale data sets, um, more creative collaboration between researchers and universities and, you know, global, global open data sets with a particular construction project and a particular new model of of how we think about build and design buildings that that is just waiting to be tapped into yeah and, and i think you're right uh, you know there is um you know i like to say that we're data rich and knowledge poor um we've got plenty out there we just don't know what we're doing with it yet and part of you know, the aha moment that we started at um might be when someone finally sort of goes well this is how everything talks to together yeah. Um, you know, it's all uh, about that framework as much as anything else. Um, I mean, it's obviously strange times um, towards the back end of those strange times, but it's been a very odd um, sort of six months. Um, but what we've seen um, in that time, um, you know, we uh, started before we were recording, um, how far Teams has come. Now, it's the you know, innovation um, in um Microsoft and a few of uh, your competitors out there has been sort of a, a requirement of the last six months. But it's amazing how quickly uh, and how fast um, the uh, tech industry, especially, has yeah. managed to, to come. How 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 can we bottle some of that need, want? I mean, we started with data as a fuel for innovation. I mean, has that been part of it as well? Microsoft has been able to see trends in people requirements focus on what the next step is, the next evolution in these things are. What is it that we can take as a bit of a golden nugget from how um, the industry's reacted and take, bring it back to construction? You, you know, Ben, that's just it. I mean, I have goose pimples as I talk to you. I mean, it was obviously a very long, hard, traumatic six months if you were running worldwide public sector for a company like the Microsoft Corporation. I was driving back um, when I realized the pandemic was going to lead to lockdown. I was driving back from Washington State to my home in Maine to meet my little boy who was coming home from school in Gordonston in, in Scotland. Um, when it, you know, the enormity of what happened hit me somewhere in Nebraska in my truck and I was running a global pandemic from my truck. Um, but, you know, the Microsoft mission is to help every individual and every organization on the planet achieve more and never 
was I more aware and more proud of the fact that that mission is the public sector mission and that when the world needed technology most, the technology industry was there, literally yeah. helping to keep the fabric of civil society together. As we talk about teams, imagine how would children learn? We we just um, over you know the past couple weeks put 7.3 million Saudi students online when um, plans had changed for you know in class learning. With the UAE over a weekend we put the entire country online to online learning. Try to imagine, you know, and, and that's with technology that was emerging, and we were real time taking feedback and improving it throughout the crisis. Working with our engineering teams, working with our field teams, talking to our our clients and our end users about how we could deliver better social value. We were deploying technology to help healthcare workers front and 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 first responders. We were in fact the digital first responders, as Sachin says, of the first responders, working with healthcare officials to grasp data, to understand where there were hotspots, to understand where there were breakouts, um, to better deliver and deploy services during hours of you know darkest need, literally, and now really working with governments around the world, particularly in healthcare, to harness the power of open data and and data of, around this this dreadful disease and the search for a cure and the way in which together in collaboration um, we can work together to better treat the disease, to hopefully find a cure for the disease, to figure out where we best need to deploy resources for the di disease and to anticipate, and I think this has relevance to the construction industry, to anticipate future trends and future needs, um, real time as events are unfolding. And mm. I would just end with, you know, uh, with re regard to the construction industry, some of the most innovative work we did was with the NHS. And where did we help build emergency um, hospital shelters, you know, for overflow? And again, mm. that was all about data. That was all about the use of data, perhaps not evident when you're thinking about the actual construction itself. But if we go to our wider discussion about building, you know, sustainable buildings or happy buildings or buildings that, you know, best work for the functionality needed, what we did during COVID, technology companies, the NHS, the construction industry is a great example. Mm. Yeah, and, um, the, you know, moving forward, the way we... Um, uh, uh, use uh, buildings, uh, transport infrastructure and things like that. Um, I think it'll never go back to what it was a year ago. Um, but what what does that mean in, in terms of how we um, you know, retrofit what we currently have, build new things, uh, and how do we implement technology that allows for more flexible buildings as well? I think that will be key. I think, um, you know, there won't be a building that will be what it is for 25, 30 years like there is now, there, there'll be a, a need to flex based on yes. a, a number of different things. Exactly. And again, that's going to the the ability to, to determine that, to model it, to predict it, mm -hmm. to adapt is all going to be data driven. It we is. may not see it. It may not be obvious right now, but it is going to be data driven. And industries that succeed will be investing in data analysts. You, you don't want to be, you want to partner with the technology industry for, for the best buildings of the future or buildings for, for the hour of need. You don't want to be dependent on researchers or technologists. Um, you control your own destiny when you invest in the skills you need to leverage the, the tools you have. And I think seeing data as a vital tool is going to be a real competitive advantage for the construction industry. Mm.
No, definitely will be. Definitely will be. Um, I mean, amazingly, we've um, almost uh, sort of talked for half an hour now. So uh, we're going to have to start thinking about finishing it. Otherwise, I'll get told off for overrunning uh, when I hand this over to Sarah. So um, if we were going to try and um, sort of bring all that back into um, you know, one takeaway um, for our listeners for the construction industry, um, one place for the construction industry to look for inspiration one question for the industry to ask itself um you know if you were going to give us one final takeaway julia um from your sort of recent experience uh, what would it be imagine a world where data and technology was not able to come together the way it did in march when the tragedy and the enormity of covid hit and imagine how stuck we would all be, how desperately, desperately stuck we would all be. And then think about the investment that went in, the United Nations technology companies, people like myself and yourself, Ben, that have been investing in helping um, the right agencies and the right stakeholders and the right actors at the right time understand the potential so that when the world needed it most, three-year to planned rollouts were able to happen over a weekend. And think about what happens if the construction industry does nothing because it's easy and it's comfortable and we have a 20th century iron cage that works and, and was created for a reason because it worked. Um, what cost doing nothing versus what opportunity looking at easily accessible, everyday, well-known data sets like geospatial and beginning to combine it with some data sets that, that might be possible for a company or an industry to open, to, to begin that, that glorious experimentation process so that when the world needs the construction industry to be the most flexible and the most adaptive, the construction industry will be there. Oh, fantastic. Uh, well, as always, uh, Julia, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been inspirational. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the uh, conversation and hopefully uh, our listeners uh, uh, out there will uh, also enjoy it. Uh, for, for everyone who's listened in, uh, thank you. Uh, don't forget to uh, like, uh, share and subscribe uh, to make sure that you uh, don't miss out on future episodes. Uh, so Julia, uh, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, day in the mountains. Thanks, Ben, and let's not go another five years. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Come to Invent for the highest R&D tax credit you can claim. We help construction businesses get back millions in tax credits every year. Contact us today for a free review. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.